I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. You'll find that on page 573 in the Bibles that we have for you in the back of the pews. Uh, I, uh, I had a pretty bad temper growing up, and uh, that meant that I got into uh, a fair number of fights as a kid. And uh, in fact, if you kind of consider my early history, it was like a broken record. I remember when I was an elementary school kid at Starmount Elementary School in Charlotte that uh, I got into a fight with a neighborhood friend and twice at McClinic Junior High School. I remember fighting in the halls of the school. And once at uh, East Mecklenburg, I remember fighting uh, with a classmate uh, at a church ski retreat. That may, that may top the top the chart there. Um, And then I took a swing at a fraternity brother at Clemson. So then I became a Christian. And uh, eventually the fighting stopped, at least the fist fighting. You know, when you think about it, no matter what kind of personality we have, we are not naturally given to peace. We don't naturally bring peace to those around us, especially uh, if uh, something is going uh, against us. So, you know, we get, we get mad or we get even when someone insults us. We get frustrated when someone gets in the way of something that we want. We get kind of sulky when someone disappoints us, and we get defensive when someone challenges us or corrects us. Uh, We're just not naturally given to being peacemakers. And what we're going to see this morning is that the only way for us to be given to peace with others is for us to receive the peace from Christ. We've been looking during this Advent series at the four names of Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6. And today we look at his name, Prince of Peace. And we're going to see that until he gives to us a new heart, until he comes to us and brings peace, uh, we just aren't naturally given to extend that peace to others. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you that you come to us and meet us in Christ, giving to us everything we need for life and godliness and everything we need to become people of peace, people who extend the peace of Christ to those around us. So help us today to be strengthened by your word, by your truths, especially by the person of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I taught church uh, history at Covenant Seminary for a number of years, and uh, one of the lectures that I did was on the formation of the canon, our, our scripture. And I would address things like the reliability and the truthfulness of scripture and, and there's someone who has become quite famous in contradicting the truthfulness of Scripture, especially the, the Gospels. Uh, a man named Bart Ehrman has really made his fortune 
questioning the reliability of the Gospels, questioning really uh, Jesus Christ and, and who he is. And one day, not too many years ago, someone asked him this question, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? And he said something really interesting, actually very revealing. His answer was simple, and here it is. If Jesus had fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth. Now, think about that for a minute because I would imagine that uh, he is not alone in that sentiment. I, I know that he is not. Many have suggested that Jesus was supposed to be the Prince of Peace, but he didn't seem to deliver. And, and you know, and, and I know, that when he was born, the choir of angels famously pronounced that he had brought peace on earth. We see that in Luke 2.14. And yet, 2,000 years later, as one person has said so well, that the guns still do not fall silent. Not even on Christmas Day, domestic violence impacts more households than most of us realize. And as one person has said, we live in the age of outrage. So can we call Jesus Prince of Peace? Can we really do that with any integrity? Well, the answer is yes. But what we have to understand is, first of all, that, that Jesus will bring perfect peace one day. One day, there will be no more war. Earlier in this same chapter of Isaiah, in verses 4 and 5, we read that the Prince of Peace is going to break the rod of the oppressor, whoever the oppressor is, and the boots of the warrior will no longer be needed for battle. Uh, but will instead be burned for fuel. The, the reason, of course, for that is that there will be no more war. And, and then in verse 7, we read that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So the, the fullness of peace is yet to come. It will come one day. But, but what we need to recognize now, so that this really does help us today, not tomorrow, is that the very important aspects, some of the most important aspects of that peace that Christ came to bring to us, we can already start to experience now because his message of peace and his work towards bringing us peace actually began 2,000 years ago on Christmas morning in a manger. But again, I want to ask if that is the truth, and it is, uh, why is there so much lack of peace in our own lives? Let me put it another way. Have you ever thought about what really lies at the, the root of every single instance of lack of peace in your own life? There's really only one answer, at least for most of this, and that is that we are at war with God. In our sin, we make ourselves enemies of God. We rebel against Him. We disrupt the peace that God longs for us to have. The Baptist preacher J.D. Greer puts it this way, we don't see the peace of God in our lives and in our world because we don't enjoy peace with God. And, and he goes on to say, the, the lack of peace in your life 
and in your relationships ultimately stems from, or at least is made worse by, a problem in your relationship with God. So, so I want to make one point this morning. Hopefully it's, it's simple and it's clear, but the point is this. Those who receive the peace of Christ begin to extend that same peace to those around them. Those whom Christ makes peace with become peacemakers themselves. We, we saw that in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. And to speak to that this morning, I want to ask three questions. First is this. Why is it? Why do we need the peace of Christ? Why do we need the peace of Christ? Well, the simple answer I've already given. In our sin, we make ourselves the enemies of God. And none of us is exempt in that. Every one of us has at times pursued a life of conflict with God. And quite frankly, we don't get through a day without falling short of His commands to us showing us the way we are to submit our lives to Him. Now, so let me give you an example of, of what I mean. Or a few examples, perhaps. Even though we call Him Lord, even though we call Him Lord, we don't really, at times, want Him to, to be in charge. Uh, we don't want Him to make our own decisions for us. We, we want to make those Decisions, decisions oftentimes ourselves. Uh, we want to decide what is right and wrong for us. And even when we know what is wrong, sometimes we're going to do it anyway. And, and in those moments, we are not submitting to Him as Lord. In, in those moments, we are rebelling against our King. Uh, another example, even though we talk openly about dependence upon God, uh, we don't really want to need Him, do we? Because it sounds so weak to admit our weaknesses, to admit our frailties. It sounds needy. And, and even though we talk about giving glory to God, we sure like praise. All of this is what the Bible calls sin, and it's the human condition of every single one of us, no matter how advanced we are in our walk with, with Jesus Christ. And, and part of what we need to understand, and this is where it gets eternally serious, if we are outside of Jesus Christ, if we have not submitted our lives to Christ, then our sin calls forth God's wrath. Now, I'm going to stop and talk about God's wrath for a moment because we don't appreciate the, the peace that Jesus came to bring us uh, until we think about the wrath that is ours apart from Jesus Christ. And, and I know that the, much of the evangelical church doesn't talk about wrath very much, so I think we need to. You know, the evangelical church oftentimes loves to talk about God's love but hates to think about God's holiness that gets angry at sin. But, but I want to ask you this question. Think about this. Would you really want a God who does not get angry at sin, who does not get angry, for example, when a child is being abused? I mean, you would not want that kind of God. That is not a good God. We want a God who hates evil and takes action against it. As we see in scriptures in so many places, one example, Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Now that's not just the Old Testament God. He wasn't mean back then and nice now. That is the God we serve. There is wrath against evil. He cannot stand to be in the presence of evil. He cannot even look upon evil. So, uh, again, why do we need the peace that only Christ can bring us? Because in our sin, we are God's adversaries. We are God's enemies. And, and God's wrath will be poured out on sin. The only question is whether or not it will be poured out on you. In other words, will it be poured out on you or will it be poured out on Christ? The question is this, whether... You will drink the cup of God's wrath, or Christ will drink it for you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was referring to the cup of God's wrath that all sin deserves and all sin gets. And the Father made it clear to him that there was no other way for us, for you and me, to be saved apart from Jesus becoming the wrath bearer for us. And that's why we hear this terrible cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, God's wrath for our sin is being poured out on God's Son so that we can become His sons and His daughters. Now, I want to stay with this for just a moment longer because we don't hear enough about God's wrath in today's church. And, and, and perhaps it's, it's a, a bit uncomfortable for us even uh, to hear this. But, but it is true. And, and anytime we, we look at the wrath of God, we, we do so uh, because of God's grace to, to warn us of what is ours outside of Christ Jesus. There's another metaphor that helps us understand our need to turn to Christ. In Psalm 17, verses 8 and 9, David asks the Lord to hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies surround me. You know, if you, if you read the Psalms a lot, and I have been doing this since college uh, I, I frankly couldn't live without the Psalms. I really don't think. And, and if you read it a lot, though, you see King David oftentimes in a desperate situation. And, and he knows that ultimately the only place he can turn for cover, uh, for shade, for protection, for refuge is to God. Especially, of course, when his enemies are overwhelming. And he knows, humanly speaking, there's no way to win. He knows that only in the shadow of God's wings is he safe from destruction. Well, Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 16th century, wrote a, a commentary on Galatians, which is, is stunning in the way it really does reveal the gospel in so many ways. Uh, but, but he takes this metaphor and he, and he uses it in a way that I haven't thought about before. Here's how he says it. But I, he's referring to himself after he has come to know Jesus Christ, after he has been uh, freed from the kind of uh, working out his salvation in his own strength. When he's come to know Christ, he says this, but I am covered under the shadow of Christ's wings. 
And I live without fear under that wide banner of the forgiveness of sins that is spread over me. Therefore, God covers and pardons the remnant of sin in me. Do you see that? I mean, as as, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick asks, can you you see how this changes the metaphor? You know, that threatening enemy who would do you such harm isn't just the wicked person who has it in for you. It's God's wrath at my sin. And the wing that shelters me from God's wrath is Christ's own body. There's no escape from the wrath of God outside of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can take it and and bear it, as it were, who, who died and then rose again, having conquered death for us because he dealt with the wrath of our sin in that moment. So, this brings us to the second question. I'm going to be much briefer here, but... Uh, This is really important. This is really where it comes home to us. Is Jesus your shelter from God's wrath? In other words, is he your wrath bearer? And what you have to understand is that we're so accustomed to to looking back perhaps at a time when we raised our hand in in a church meeting or prayed a prayer with someone or Uh, walked an aisle or had an emotional experience and all of those things, all of those things could have been the the moment at which you became a follower of Jesus Christ. But they might not be because at the end of the day, the only way for an enemy of God to find that shelter is to surrender, is to submit our lives to Christ. And that results in a very different kind of life going forward. Not perfect, so far from perfect but a life that is growing, that is becoming more like Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said, fallen man, he's thinking about conversion here. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. So again, is is Jesus your shelter from God's wrath? And, and, And again, I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, had an emotional experience. Uh, raise your hand. That can be a good thing. But I'm asking this question. Have you really surrendered your life to Christ? The only way to end conflict with God is to surrender to Him. He is not going to surrender, and and you're not going to win that battle. So, maybe some more personal questions that help you think about that. Uh, do you go his way even when it conflicts with your way? Yeah, do you want what he wants for you even when it's, when it's not naturally what you would want for yourselves? Have you said to Jesus, and this, this really has to be the ultimate kind of answer as it were. Have you said to Jesus, I will no longer decide what to do with my life. You will. Uh, again, we don't do any of that perfectly, this side of heaven. But until you get there, until that is truly your heart attitude toward God that, uh, that you know, you, you have said to Christ and, and you mean it and you seek to live it out day after day after day, you know, I, I no longer am going to decide what to do with my life. You are. Uh, until you get to that point, you will not know the, the, the peace that the Prince of Peace came on Christmas morning to bring you. You, you just will not. 
But when that is your heart attitude, then this amazing transformation begins to take place because the Spirit of God actually comes to live in you. And so not only do you receive the, the peace of God, but you begin to extend that peace to others. You begin to become a peacemaker with those around you. And so third question is this. What does it look like to be a peacemaker? Well, peacemakers become more patient husbands, more caring employers, more forgiving friends, and more gentle in all their relationships as Christ identified himself as gentle and lowly. We become more gentle with those even who are not gentle with us, and we stop hating those who rub us the wrong way. I'm going to, instead of giving you more Scripture this morning, I want to give you a beautiful example of what peacemaking looks like. And it comes from a friend who is a pastor in our denomination, and uh, he, he tells this rather amazing story. It was uh, Sunday morning during worship. The congregation was singing, and a man in the, in the church came up to him and, and put his hand on my pastor friend's shoulder. Uh, this guy, um, my pastor calls church guy. And uh, church guy points to this man who's come into worship. He's got tattered jeans. He's got a dirty t-shirt. He's got a cup of coffee. And uh, this church guy says, can you believe he came in here with that? And, and then he goes on to say, and when he walked by me, he just reeked of nicotine. Uh, and, and then he says, pastor, what are you going to do about him? He is uh, distracting my worship. And uh, fortunately, at the end of the worship service, someone else got to this man before church guy could reach him. Now, this person that reached him from the church uh, was a recovering alcoholic, introduced himself, and the man said his name was George and uh, uh, shared just a bit of his story. He was a recovering heroin addict, and he thought that being a part of a church might help him with that. And then uh, my pastor friend says this. I just love this. He says, you know, uh, nicotine, what do you call a nicotine addiction uh, in a recovering heroin addict? You call it an upgrade. That's progress. He's doing better. Well, same Sunday morning, a woman named Janet brought her two boys to the nursery and uh, dropped them off. Later, after worship was over, picked them up, and a, a nursery worker quietly uh, took her to the side and said, both your boys picked a fight during, the, during nursery, and one of them broke some toys that the church owns. And, and uh, so Janet uh, was deeply embarrassed and got really angry with her boys, scolded them and, uh, in front of a bunch of uh, children and parents, and uh, sometimes just kind of blurted out this four-letter word. She realized what she had done, where she was. She looked down in shame, and she just kind of skulked out of the building with her boys. Well, a couple days later, the director of uh, the nursery got this woman's address and wrote her a letter. And I want to read to you what she said, the gist of what she said in this letter. Dear Janet, 
I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange when you picked them up from the nursery, let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. I am really drawn to honesty, and you are clearly an honest person. I hope we can become friends. Love, the nursery worker. The nursery worker and Janet did, in fact, become friends. And Janet came back the next Sunday and the next Sunday after that and the next Sunday after that. And eventually, Janet became the nursery director for the church. There's one significant detail, though, that I haven't told you yet about Janet's story. She is also uh, George's wife. And she, too, when she first came to the church, was recovering from heroin. Jesus made friends with sinners of all kinds. The prodigals like George and Janet, and believe it or not, the person that we're tempted to hate in this story, church guy, a modern-day Pharisee. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us that Jesus was wounded and bruised for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. It took a lot for us to have peace with God, whether we were were prodigal or Pharisee. It doesn't require nearly as much of us to offer that peace to others. And so our prayer for ourselves should be by God's grace, by his work in us, by his work through us, by his work for us. May we too extend the peace of God to those around us. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, may that indeed be our heart's desire and our prayer to you. Uh, It is so easy for us to disturb the peace rather than to bring peace to disturbing moments. And yet that is your call upon us. Forgive us where we have failed that, as we all have, and help us, Lord, grow in becoming those who really delight in seeing you work through us as we extend your peace to those around us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.